the easiest way to look at the middle, it's where the character goes from reactive, so events are happening, to proactive where they take charge. And then everything they do from then on is hopefully making their life harder. Hello and welcome to the Writer's Mindset Podcast with me, Christina Adams. And me, Ellie Betts. Each week we're here to bring you the strategies and advice you need to achieve and exceed your writing goals. Yes, indeed. This week we're talking to fictionary CEO Christina Stanley about self-editing. Combining her degree in computer mathematics with her success as a best-selling, award-winning author and fiction editor, Christiana Stanley is the creator and CEO of Fictionary, creative editing software for fiction writers and editors. She is a Fictionary certified story coach, and her novels include the Stone Mountain mystery series and Look the Other Way. She's the author of The Author's Guide to Selling Books to Non-Bookstores, and she's also a passionate guide dog trainer and hiker. I sat down with her to talk all about the editing process, how it affects authors, why it can be such a pain, story structure and why it's important and how Fictionary helps you streamline your editing process. Christina has also kindly given us a discount code for Fictionary, which you can find at the top of the show notes below this episode. And that is a lifetime discount too, so you've got it for as long as you are using Fictionary. Fantastic, how generous. If you find this or other episodes valuable, you can support the writer's mindset over on Patreon. You'll get early access to episodes, bonus content, and our undying gratitude for supporting all the work that goes into creating these episodes to inspire and motivate you. To find out more, visit patreon.com forward slash writers mindset. How's your writing been going this week, Ellie? This week I have a big win. I finished my dissertation and Woo! I feel oh, so relieved. Uh, <laughs> it was difficult at the end. It's difficult all the way through, actually, but particularly so at the end. Um, it was a struggle to, to finish it. And there were points where I wanted to give up. I'm not going to lie. But now that I've done it, oh, I feel so good. feels so good. And I feel like I learned a lot as well. Like I didn't realize at the time, sometimes when you're right in the thick of it, it's hard to realize that you're currently learning things and you're currently gaining the experience. But after the fact, you can look back more easily and think, oh, shit, that's where I learned that. Yeah. <laughs> What about you? What have you been writing this week? I had a revelation this week. A revelation? That's very exciting. I know. Um, Well, it came, it started off from a pretty shitty place. Um, I was having a rough week. I was feeling very overwhelmed. I was panicking about editing Hollywood Heartbreak and Hollywood Romance and The Mummy's Curse. And my brain was just like, it's not the fact that there was lots of books. It was just the fact that these books are quite complicated because Hollywood Heartbreak and Hollywood Romance overlap the entire what happens in series which is five books long and the mummy's curse i got notes back from beta readers and also had my notes for myself and that was notes from four different people and when i was doing the notes for the mummy's curse i just felt like there was loads there and i was like oh my god oh my god oh my god there's loads here and i thought you know what i've got to streamline this i've got to find a more efficient way of doing it and so instead of doing what i normally do which is really haphazard and not efficient and please don't ever do what i do is I literally put all the notes into Scrivener and then I edit them based on what mood I'm in. 
And that means that if there's a particular edit that I don't want to do, and I've only got the ones I don't want to do left, it creates this roadblock, basically. And so my new technique was to go a chapter at a time and then like input the notes for for each chapter at a time and edit that chapter until I was done. And the only time I would stop was if like I'd rewritten something and I wanted to go back to it. And I managed to edit the entire book, which is about 70,000 words in basically two days. And that, and I also did podcast editing at the same time. So I'd like edit a chapter or two of the book, then I would edit 10 minutes of the podcast. And it was a really efficient way to work. And I really enjoyed it. And after that was like, well, okay, this is a technique I've never done before. What else can I do? And I decided to outline. It was a bit, because if you think like back to earlier episodes and all the conversations we've had with people and everyone is like, outline, 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 outline. Like you've got some people writing 10,000 words, some people writing 30 pages, et cetera. And that always terrified me, but I thought I'm going to strip it back to basics and try something for me. So what I did was I broke it down per chapter. This was for Hollywood romance. And I wrote down what I wanted to happen in each chapter. And it took me maybe an hour, an hour or two. And I just found that doing it that way helped me work out how I could weave the subplots in and where the overlaps lay. And I just felt a lot more confident about the book once I had done that overlap and I haven't written it yet I'm still editing Hollywood Heartbreak but that was the other benefit of doing the outline which was I then knew how to end Hollywood Heartbreak because I like knew what events needed to happen at the end but it was coming up with a scene that kind of summed it up I hadn't got that and that was the downside to my bullet pointed outline actually it wasn't really an outline we call it a bullet pointed plot and fleshing out Hollywood romance which starts directly after it in that way just really really helped me feel much more focused and get stuff out of my head and problem solve because I think this is where a lot of people get stuck when they're writing and editing is that they are problem solving as they go and problem solving is the hardest part of being a writer because if you're not careful you end up like George R.R. Martin and you literally write yourself into a hole where you can't finish the next book he admitted he's killed off a character that he actually now has realized that he needs for something. And so he is in a massive hole and doesn't know how to get out of it. It's a terrifying concept. If, well, if I were to do that, I would be bricking it. <laughs> exactly. And that's why I'm already thinking about like book seven and eight in the Afterlife Course series. And it's not just because I'm excited for the series and whatever. It's also because I can't get the characters out of my head and I like writing things down so that I don't forget shit. It's a, good, it's a good technique, to be fair. This Thank is you. why I started doing writing everything down. Yeah. So stay tuned for progress on how outlines are helping or not helping. This will be a work in progress. It is an entirely new process of me trying to be more organized. But I'm hoping that if I can outline more, it means I can edit faster and release faster. Because I feel like I have reached the peak of what I can achieve with my current process. And I would like to be able to release six, seven books a year. But I just can't because I'm not efficient enough. And there is so much happening in the Afterlife Cause series. If I don't release three and four back to back, I'm probably going to be lynched. Yes. Yes, you will. I'm going to be first in line. And then all the other fans are going to be behind me with the pitchforks. 
Yeah, that's a scary prospect. But speaking <laughs> of afterlife calls, we are doing a little quiz to promote the launch of The Mummy's Curse at the end of September, right about the time this episode goes out. So if you do want to join in with that, check out christinaadamsauthor.com and head to the blog and there will be details on there. I'll include a link to the actual um, page with more details in the show notes because I haven't actually created the page with more details on the challenge yet but it will be basically like a bunch of questions um about you and your reading habits and your life for you to share and use the hashtag afterlife calls quiz it'll be things like do you believe in ghosts what's the spookiest thing that's ever happened to you things like that so yeah do come and join in doesn't matter if you're joining in a few days late it's always nice to see people and we are doing that on facebook instagram and twitter and i think a couple of people might be doing it on tiktok as well so that'll be really fun so do come and join us It'll be great fun, mostly because I am very excited for Mommy's Curse coming out and I've bought uh, ghost-themed stuff and um, skull-themed stuff just to show how much I love it. I'm excited. (laughs) So basically your Instagram is going to be a different ghost-related object every day or if you're doing it on video, you're going to be like wearing a different hat or different different background stuff. I'm going to need more stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Any excuse. All right, on that note then, shall we head on over to our interview with Christina Stanley? Absolutely, I'll see you there. With me today is Christina Stanley, CEO of Fictionary. Thank you so much for joining us. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay, so we'll just get, we'll start right into it. So obviously my name is Christina. I um, created a product called Fictionary and I did that because I am an author and I am an editor and I wanted to create something that would help authors and editors be better at what they do. I've got uh, four novels published. Um, One was shortlisted for Canadian Crime Writers and the other for um, an award in the UK whose name I just forgot which is really terrible. Anyway, it was shortlisted. I've been on bestseller list for Amazon several times, so that's very exciting. And I've kind of switched my career from writing to story edit. And on a side note, I train uh, guide, or guide dog puppies. I raise them from eight weeks old to about a year and a half. I'm on my fourth one now. She's sitting at my feet. So, you know, if there's a puppy interruption, could be her, could be Millie, who knows? Mm-hmm. I love that. How many guide dogs did you say you've done for? So I'm far? on my fourth one. Yeah. So my first one is with a gentleman in Vancouver. We have one with a boy, a young boy um, who has autism. And uh, my third one is in advanced training. And then this is the one we have right now. She is seven months. So she's she's a lab. She's yellow. So her name is Sage and she's starting to get a little bit bigger now, but she's an absolute Mm -hmm. joy. They are. They're gorgeous dogs, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. Millie's on the prowl. So you might just see her come in and out of shot. Okay, so let's talk about stories then and editing and writing a little bit. So let's start with why is the structure of a story so important? Okay, so I love this topic and I've I've done a lot, a lot, a lot of research on it. And the reason the story structure is so important to telling a powerful story is that the form of a story structure has never changed. So if we go back to 750 BC and Beowulf was written. It's an epic poem. It's about monsters. It follows the same story arc form. And I want to be very careful, not formula, form as (laughs) Twilight did when it came out and is hugely commercially successful, both about monsters, both very different. But 
when you start looking at all of the commercially successful books, books that have lasted through time, uh, popular movies, they all follow the same story structure. And so it's critically important for both a writer and a story editor to understand what the story arc is. Um, what it means to their story. And if I were to pick the most important thing, that is it, right? That if there's no structure to the story, the human brain doesn't enjoy it. It's really triggered to experience a story in a specific way. And regardless of the medium, if you think how much technology has changed on how we experience stories, it's incredible, except the story form has just not changed. And that's why it's so important. If if you want to reach a big readership, there's lots of people who are writing to a very specific niche, and that's great. But if, if you want to write a book that is um, popular with many, many people, the story arc is the way to do it. You mentioned there there's a difference between form and formula. So for our listeners who are unsure, can you just clarify the difference, please? Sure. So with the story arc, um, there's ranges. And so you need to have an inciting incident. And it needs to be somewhere between 0 and 15% of the start of your novel. And if it's not, the reader's going to feel like the story's dragging. What's happening? Why am I reading this book? And it's going to go down. Formula would be saying... An inciting incident must happen at exactly 10% in a story, in every story. And with form, that's not true. With form, if we look at a movie like Casablanca, the inciting incident is way late. But up until then, the story is full of subplots, full of tension that relate to the protagonist's journey. So it's related to the story, but it's not the inciting incident. And so the key is with form to understand it and use it. And once you understand it, fully know how to apply it, then go ahead and break the rules and try a different way. That's fine. Where a formula would be, you can never do that. It's just A, B, C, D, which how boring would that be? Yeah. So something that our listeners were quite keen to find out is, are there any story structures or formulas that you would recommend authors follow over any other? Or would you say they just kind of follow the basic form and then expand on that? Right. So I would... I always recommend start with the basic until you're an expert in it. And then, you know, we in Fictionary, we use the five key points because if you have those, you have a pretty good story. Without those, your story's lost at some point. I'm editing a book right now that doesn't have a climax. So that doesn't work. You read all the way through and then it just kind of pitters. And you think, well, okay, readers are not going to be happy with that. So it must have the key scenes, the five key scenes in it. And that's the exciting incident, plot point one, a middle, plot point two, and the climax. And then you can go on and study forever of seven points, 12 points, pinch points, but it gets very complicated. So it depends where a writer is in their writing journey on how they want to do it. So unless the, the basic story arc has been mastered, I kind of recommend learn that and then move on to something else if you want to. Yeah. Why do you think then those five um, key scenes are so important to a book? Because for example, a book without a climax is going to be mega unfulfilling, right? The readers yes. can be lower. Yes. So why is that and the other points that you mentioned so significant and important for every book? Well, the reason really is there's been a lot of research done on how the human brain actually likes to experience a story. And the research has shown this is the way people like to experience a story. But if we look at the story arc, so the inciting incident is typically what happens. Sometimes it's sentence one. Sometimes it's before the book. Sometimes, you know, up to 15%-ish. But basically, the character's life is set up so you can, you can relate to their ordinary life. And then something happens. 
So uh, Gone Girl is an example where Nick comes home and he finds his wife missing. That's right out of the gate. You know, there's a little bit of him describing his relationship, but right out of the gate. If we look at Harry Potter, it's a little bit farther in where he's sitting under the stairway and he he gets the hint that something with the letter, something's going on, there's a letter for him, he doesn't get it. And so it's the initial world being shaken up. And without that, nothing's happening. So it's just a person's life, but there's nothing changing. And the thing that's stressful and tenseful and people want to read about is change. And without an inciting incident, there is no change. Plot point one is where um, the protagonist can no longer turn back from whatever the change is. And so they're making a decision or they're forced to move forward. So Harry Potter, super easy example, because he gets off the train at Hogwarts. He certainly can't go back. It's done. No matter how he feels about it, where Gone Girl Nick takes, um, it's, he finds his first clue from Amy and he realizes, uh, oh, she really hasn't been kidnapped and she's up to something and she's trying to take him down. So he has to do something back, right? So it becomes the trigger for the real adventure to start. And the protagonist is now in a go mode. If, if it's too close to the inciting incident, the story lacks depth and we'll feel rushed. If it's too far away, again, we get into the boredom thing of what's happening in this story, nothing's happening, flip, flip, flip. Okay, I'm not gonna read it. The middle is interesting because a lot of authors struggle in the middle of what to do with your story. But the, the easiest way to look at the middle, it's where the character goes from reactive, so events are happening, to proactive where they take charge. And then everything they do from then on is hopefully making their life harder, maybe a little bit better and mostly harder, a little bit better, mostly harder. They have to have some wins, but not all wins. And, you know, so it's got to be a balance toward life is difficult because that's what's interesting to read about. One of the reasons people read is to learn and try and experience, well, what if I was in that situation? What would I do? And so it makes it really fun to read. Plot point two should be the lowest of the low for the protagonist. They are down in the dumps. It's, it's as bad as things are going to get for them. And then the climax is the tensest scene in the story. And it's the scene where the protagonist either wins or loses at achieving whatever the story goal is for that. And it could be a quiet story about someone trying to pass an exam. It could be a crazy sci-fi thriller saving the world. You know, there's an extreme end to end. And that's, again, what we mean by form is there's such a variety within a form. But if the character is striving for something and we never find out if they get it, it is not satisfying and nobody wants to read that. You think I just spent hours and hours reading this book and I don't know what happened. It's just dwindled. Going slightly bigger picture then in terms of story structure, why does every scene need a purpose in a book? Yeah, so this is really important. Okay, so as a, and I'm a writer, so I know where this comes from. So when you're writing a book, <laughs> particularly if you're a planster, doesn't happen so much if you're a plotter, but it still does. You get a little bit carried away and you write a scene. It's a great scene about the protagonist. Awesome. But what does it have to do with the story? Maybe nothing. So the thing when we're looking at the purpose of the scene, the question is, why is the scene in the story? And if it's not either pushing the protagonist toward their goal or away from their goal it shouldn't be in the scene it has no purpose or sorry it shouldn't be in the story and so what it does is is if you can't answer the question the scene needs to be rewritten or cut no matter how good it is if it's not related to the plot and it's not driving the story in some way impacting the protagonist in some way then it's it's 
it just extra reading that the reader's reading for no point. And what happens there is they'll look in that story and say, for example, the scene has no purpose, but it's describing something, anything, a phone, it doesn't matter what. The reader will interpret that as well. It was written about, so it's important. But of course, if it's not related to the story, it's never mentioned again. The scene has no purpose. And then the reader thinks, well, where did that go? And they lose trust in the author that they're not in control of their writing. And so it's a question I love to push writers to ask is why is it in the book? And when you can answer that, great. And when you can't, it sparks creativity because you think, okay, it's kind of related. How could I make it related? How could I make it impact the protagonist that life is just going to get worse for them? And then the story becomes interesting again. Yeah, I actually got asked this question by one of my beta readers for my book that they're beta reading at the moment. And she said, like, I don't understand why these two characters are in a scene. And I'm like, it's because it's building towards something that happens not just in this book and helps the character, the main character have an epiphany, but also it's building to something tragic that happens in the next book. So it has to be there because otherwise the emotional impact isn't going to be there for the next book. But obviously she has no idea what happens in the next book to the characters. Right. So she didn't have the background for that. Yeah. And then she's like, okay, now I get it now. Yeah. But the trick is there now is for you to go back and look at what could you add to that scene that gives it purpose for book one or book two, whatever you are in the series. So it gives it purpose for the current story because you don't want your readers reading that and going, why is this here? And then finding it out later, they, you want them to trust you. So if you can just add something in there that links it in or something in there that impacts the protagonist in some way, it'll fit. And then you have it and it's there for the next book. But being standalone, it's a bit risky because you'll have other readers who go, why did you put this here? Yeah. Yeah, I think there are certainly some scenes, particularly in the subplots that need a little bit of work. And I'm aware of that. And I'm excited to get notes back in like the next week from people. But also nice. I'm like, Am I ready to start editing or do I want to just keep writing things? <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, yeah, it's hard. I consider editing writing though, because for me, it's a creative process and it's where I get my best ideas that I'll have a basic draft written. And then when I'm looking at my scenes and doing stuff like, well, what is the purpose of this scene? I think, oh, it could be this, it could be that. And then I'll rewrite it. So for me, it is writing because it's making the story better. I mean, I'm kind of an editing geeky, nerdy person. I love it. I love it. And because that's when I'm most creative and I actually find it easier to do that than write the full first draft is hard and going back and editing yeah. to me is just a joy yeah for me it's the opposite I detested editing until like two years ago and uh, sometimes I still kind of find that hatred and it's like I just want to write I just want to plan I love plotting stuff I mm -hmm. absolutely love it and for me that's the most creative part but I enjoy the writing and then it gets to editing my brain's like no I don't want to do it and I, it's like walking through treacle sometimes I just have to force myself and then some days I can like do chapters and chapters and it's easy as anything speaking of editing then why do you think some writers struggle with editing their own writing, particularly when they're in the early stages of their career? Well, I think there's several reasons. One, there's been, you know, this myth out there, you can't edit your own writing. I mean, I built a whole company on the premises that yes, you can. So clearly, I really believe that you can. And to me, anything you learn, and you want to be really great at it, you have to practice, you cannot write a story without editing it. And so I think writers start at a disadvantage saying, well, I can't do this anyway, why would I do it? And I think people consider editing almost proofreading, or you're just looking at all the nitty gritty and not editing your story to make it a better story. And so it's not fun. It's just, it's overwhelming. There's too much to do with a full length novel without a process and a structure. It's really, really difficult to do. It's a cognitively complex task. And so it's frustrating if you don't really know what you're editing for, 
If you don't know what makes a good story, if you don't have a process, it's this huge big blob of an MS Word document where you go, huh, I got 80,000 words. Don't know what to do with it. And for me, when I started, well, I just kept reading it over and over again, hoping something would happen. Well, it doesn't really work that way. And and I mean, obviously, I love it when our writers use Fictionary to add it because it's my product, but you can use a spreadsheet, you can use a whiteboard, you can use, you know, graph paper, whatever it is, as long as there's a process, it makes it much easier. And part of the reason for Fictionary, it does all the boring bits, you know, it splits out your word count per scene and draws that for you. So you see it, you don't have to graph it and go, okay, is this balance, right? I hate this. It's like, oh, look at this. I have, you know, three or four scenes in a chapter and this one chapter has 17 scenes. Huh, maybe that's unbalanced. I better do something about that. And that's an easy fix for a writer because they go, okay, well, let's make it, you know, can we theme the scenes and just break them up into different chapters? But it means you have to take the time to draw that, to see it. And so the technology today now allows you, there it is in 30 seconds. Okay, I can see that. And you know, when you're looking at your Word document, it's really difficult to see because you have no way to compare it, right? So I think there was a lot of drudgery in editing and we've tried to take a lot of that out. I used to um, write using Microsoft Word and I never finished anything because I was just so overwhelmed seeing like tens of thousands of words in a document. And that's why I started writing using Scrivener. Mm-hmm. I love you could break it down much easier and you can go oh okay that chapter is a thousand words that chapter is two thousand and you can just visualize it and also compartmentalize it and the compound i can't say it the compartmentalization is so much easier for me and stops my brain from getting overwhelmed right so interesting what you said there what that is is the art of story design so now if it's drawn for you you're looking at how are you designing your story to have maximum impact on the reader as opposed to trying to just blindly go through it, you've you've now jumped to you're actually designing the structure of your story. And to me, that gets really exciting because you can make minor changes that have a major impact on how the story feels to the to the reader. Yeah, definitely. Um, so what advice would you give to a writer who is looking to improve their self-editing skills, other than trying fictionary, of course? Yeah, so there um I would pick things. So I would pick, first of all, know what a scene is very basic and then look at each scene with a uh, beginning a middle and an end just like you would a whole story do you have a structure of a scene and look at where are your scene break characters it's probably one of the most important things you can do when you first start editing your draft is to look at what are your scenes and you know if you change the point of view start a new scene if a scene is too long look for a change of point of view or a change in location a change in time so that you start out your edit with a basic structure that's good you're going to change it obviously as you revise but you start with a good one and then if i were to like just pick a few things i would say name each scene and in three words or four words not a description name it and if you can't name it and that it it doesn't mean like that or if like big words if you can't name your scene it probably lacks focus and if it lacks focus then you ask yourself well what's the purpose of this scene right So those are things that can have high level, quick impact. And then the next thing is who's your protagonist and who is the point of view for the scene? And then what, so whoever has the point of view, even if it's, if it is the protagonist, what's their goal for the scene? If they don't have a goal for every scene, what are they doing? Nothing. They're boring. Get rid of the scene, right? You look at that. So you got your scene name, you figure out, does it have a purpose? What is it? Who's the point of view character and do they have a goal? If you do those things, you're so far ahead of the game on understanding your story structure. And then you can start looking at the different 
different elements in a story that you should evaluate for each scene. But that's a way to at least start and get going and get your book to a point where now you can really start to edit it. Just to get back to something that you mentioned there, you talked about changes in point of view. Mm -hmm. And I know that this is something a lot of trad publishers do is they change point of view within the same scene. Mm -hmm. And there is kind of some people are, oh, it's acceptable because the traditionally published authors do it. But why is head hopping a bad idea for writers to do? It's not that it's a bad idea. It takes talent as a writer to do it well. So what I recommend is do this. Try and stay per scene. When you're first starting, stick to point of view and learn how to write in point of view. So you have one point of view character. If you're writing omniscient, sometimes that is a little paragraph at the beginning with a point of view. And sometimes it's fully omniscient. So that, of course, follows its own rules. But anytime we're having any kind of point of view, learn it, learn it, learn it. And then when you have control, you can switch. And the reason it's a problem, if it's not done well, the reader gets confused, like, whoa, who is this person? Why are we in this person's thoughts? Whose thoughts are they? I don't know. Um, it takes a lot of extra words to go from one character's point of view to the other and make it clear. So it's dragging the story down and making it slow, unless you're really talented on how to do the flip. It also can take tension out of a scene. So if two characters are having a, a conflict or an emotional interaction, and you know what both are thinking, there's no tension. But if you only know what one character is thinking, think, oh, what's the impact? What are they going to do? What are they going to say? And all of a sudden there's tension in the scene. So if point of view change takes the tension out of the scene, don't do it, right? Um, You'll very rarely see a published author that changed point of view more than twice in a scene. Typically you'll see, and Louise Penny does this, and she's a Canadian author. She does this in her latest book, and she's our biggest author, and she writes beautifully. And it's a transition from one to the other. Um, another big example is the Born Identity, Jason Bourne. There's a lot of uh, changes, points of view changes, but it's done so well, it just flows. But they're really talented, talented writers. And so learn at first, practice, practice, practice. And then when you do decide for a scene, you must change point of view because there are cases where it's appropriate. You'll do it well and you'll do it for a reason and not by mistake. I was reading a YA fantasy book a while ago now and I was really enjoying the book and then at the end of this one chapter it switched from first person to being in third person from the perspective of the villain and it was literally like two paragraphs from this person's perspective in the entire book and it you didn't need it because you could tell that this person was the villain and they were going to double cross the main character just from the way they were behaving and it really pulled me out of the book and also confused me Like, because going from first person and then suddenly it was third person about someone that at the time we'd not really spent that much time with, but there was clearly a bit suspicious. It was so weird. Yes. And that brings up a really important point and that's balance. So Linwood Barclay writes thrillers and he changes from uh, third to first, but he does it early in the book. So the reader is expecting, okay, that's how he's writing. He does it for one character and it's in a chapter for that character. And so you know what the pattern is, that protagonist, third person, villain, first person. And as long as the book is structured properly, and here we go right back to the art of story design, it's done on purpose, that you can tell this is a big thing for me, right? It's thinking about how do you want the reader to experience your book and balancing it for that exact reason that had there been a trend from early, so again, the same goes with with switching points of view. If you write 
20 scenes in one person's point of view. And then there's somebody else. The reader's going to go, what? Why is this here? It's jarring. So if you're going to write multi-point of view story, do it early. And then you carry it the whole way through in a balanced fashion where your protagonist has the most point of view scenes. Also important. So it comes all back to balance and not surprising the reader with some format thing that then you think, oh, that writer doesn't have control of their writing and I don't want to read this book anymore. Yeah, Tess Garretson does the same thing with some of her books. Um, Mm -hmm. She has the villain in first person and then Rizzoli Niles in third person. And I always did, I found it weird because it was the first book I'd ever read that did that but actually the more of her stuff I read the more I like it and the more I appreciate it mm-hmm, what she's doing because she's very talented at yeah. it, right she knows she's, she's doing it for a purpose she's she's decided she's doing it and she has control over it and and that's yeah she's chosen to write her book right yeah I think she's got a new Rosalie Niles one coming out soon she's definitely working on it so I'm excited so then let's talk a little bit about fictionary how can it help writers edit their books okay so fictionary <laughs> I built, so my background, I have a computer mathematics degree. So I'm a mathy to start. And then I transitioned later to write novels. So I created a whole process using spreadsheets and formulas and graphs to analyze my story. And Fictionary came from that. You know, I went out to look for, oh, I need a tool to help me do this because it's so complicated. So what Fictionary does is it imports your manuscript and it breaks it up um, into chapters and scenes. It pulls out um, all the characters, links them to scenes, sets the point of view. And I want to I caveat that with its natural language processing. So it's not perfect that it's doing it in a contextual basis and it's trying to figure out who is the actual point of view character. So if it doesn't get it right, you just flip it to who it is. Character names like April, is it a name or a month? So, you know, these things are tricky. But when you have all of that, it it also takes a stab at your story arc and where your key scenes are. And then you, of course, as the author can change those. You think, no, it's not actually scene two, it's scene five. Fine. Um, that probably means there's a balance of word count issue within the story that needs to be looked at. Um, It draws the word count per scene, the chapters per scene, so you can look for balances. You can look at who has the point of view, how many characters have the point of view, the order they have them in. Is it the right balance? Does the protagonist have the most? Is there too many scenes? So say with a point of view character, there's it's a character has it and 20 scenes goes by. You think, okay, when they come back in again, they need a little introduction where if it's two scenes later, they don't. And so it shows you very clearly, okay, I better pay attention here. This character's come back in. Hmm. Maybe the reader's going to struggle with who is this bald person anyway, right? And so the idea behind Fictionary, it's super structured. It does all the boring bits of drawing things for you. It has writing advice for 38 story elements. And so when you're looking at something like point of view as a writer, if you don't understand quite what it is, the writing advice is right there for you. So you can click on it and go, what am I supposed to do for this? And so as you're evaluating each scene, you can actually think about and learn about it. And we have lots of writers who've used it as a learning tool to how to write a good story, which I love because it gets them to that next level. And the feedback is their next book's easier because they know all that stuff now when they go in. And so the goal is to enable the writer to have a way to self-edit their story in an organized fashion and to show them as they revise their story, what changes. So the story arc will change as they go. The word count per scene will obviously change as they go. When they drag and drop scenes around, 
that will change the story arc. And so you can see, did it still work? Oh, look, I have too many scenes after my climax. Oops, better fix that. And so it's continual feedback to the writer as they're revising. And so they can really focus on one, learning, two, it's fun, as opposed to, oh, I have to draw this thing. And when they come out of it at the end, they have all these insights to look at to see, okay, did that work or not? I love that because it makes editing less tedious. I mean, you've still got that analytical side of it, even if you're not particularly analytical or logical in the way that you think. So what actually led you to create Fictionary then? What's the story behind it? (laughs) My husband. So we lived on a sailboat for nine years and we were sailing in the Bahamas at the time when I was writing my first three books and I had an agent before I got my publisher and she (laughs) said, yeah, this is all great, but book three needs to be book one. It's out of order. You're like, uh, okay. So I had to rewrite all of this. So I had this complex spreadsheet of, did I check this? Did I check that? No, I'm, you know, and drawing my word count for scenes. And is it still working and everything? And my husband literally walked by and went, what are you doing? I go, oh, I'm writing. It's like in Excel. Yep. That's what I'm doing. It's like, okay, why are you doing that? So we talked about it. And then not long after that, we'd just come back to Canada and we were, we were, thinking, well, what do we want to do? And he said, you know, that spreadsheet thing you were doing, we can make an app out of that. Like if you're doing this, other writers have to have this problem. It can't be just you who's struggling with how do I pull my whole stories together and and do all of this. And so um, we just decided he's got a computer science background. And so the two of us decided, you know, we took our savings and put it into Fictionary. And, um, you know, there's such joy in working with writers and now other editors I mean, story is so important, right? If you think about story, without it, you can't talk about your past. There's no way. You can't dream about the future. There's just no way. Like, without story, I don't know. I don't know how you live. So, to me, stories really, good stories are really important. And I grew up in a family of reading, and I just always loved it. And so, it kind of came through this long process. And since we started, we focused originally just on writers, and now we have a product. So Storyteller is for writers, and Story Coach is for professional editors, so that editors are focusing on all the things that make a story powerful when they're editing for a writer. And so that came out of working with writers and discovering that too many writers were getting edits that really weren't doing them any good. And they were getting a copy edit versus a structural edit. And so we wanted to solve that problem that let's help editors by using an organized process that covers everything and reminds them, look at this, look at this, look at this, and they can do it quickly. And so it's faster, but it's a better quality. So then the writer and the editor speaking the same language and it just all works better. So how did using a tool like Storyteller compare to someone using a human editor for their development or structural edits? Right. We have both. We have lots of writers who just use Storyteller and go on and and self-publish. We have writers who go on and, and use an editor beyond that. So the big difference really is that when you use a structural editor, you're looking for someone who understands story at a level higher than you do so that they're going to find um, things in your store that you haven't seen or didn't know about or didn't understand. Maybe you thought you did, but you don't. And so an editor's role is to come back and give you suggestions. It's your story. It's the writer's story. The writer's the artist. It's suggestions. And just because an editor said it, you know, and so really for the writer, the writer has the voice. The editor's job is to 
give suggestions to improve the story that won't change the author's voice or the story intent, right? Both a writer and an editor should be creative. Um, a writer can be at any point, they could be a brand new writer to a very experienced writer doing their self-edit. An editor must be experienced in what's a powerful story to edit someone else's story. And so you're really looking for someone who understands story and can read your story and bring it to that next that next level. Does that help? Does that, is that? Yeah, yeah, definitely. What about a story coach then? How can that benefit professional editors? Yeah, so again, I mean, first thing is it um, <laughs> takes the drudgery out. So what we were finding is that a lot of professional editors weren't actually drawing the story arc or the word count per scene because it's too time consuming and you can't afford to do it. You just can't afford the time with what you're paid. So it just doesn't get done. And so with Story Coach, it means that the editor is super comprehensive and that their, their edit is of really high quality. So they're looking at every aspect of character, plot and setting for the writer. You actually end up being faster but doing a better job because it's a very organized process. And for the editor, Story Coach is the same in the sense that there's editing advice right within Story Coach. So if an editor is thinking, yeah, I don't really know what this is. I'm just going to read up on that. Oh, okay. I get what I'm doing, evaluating this. And it, it just enables the editor to, to see the story. And then the beauty is at the end, the edit comes back in a Story Coach account for the writer and the writer gets two copies of it. And so they'll get a copy with the story arc set to what the editor thinks the key scenes are. And they might be way out of whack, like the climax is too early or something. And then as the, as the writer revises their story, they can actually see the impact the editor's suggestions are having on their story. And so for the first time ever, they can see really what the editor is saying makes sense for their story. And the editor then has proof that writers tend to be more open to advice that's shown in a picture versus me as I read your book and I think you're citing incidents too late. Well, what if I could show you? Or what if I could show you? Look, you have 17 scenes in this chapter. It's too long, right? And so it makes the relationship between the editor and the writer better because there is actual um, data behind the advice they're giving as opposed to just I read it and here's some notes yeah that's cool because you do process it better I think when you've got those visuals and then it feels a little bit less like an opinion of yes. someone it's kind of more based in scientific fact yes and you can do things you know we have a thing that says what's the purpose of the scene and as an editor if I don't know I just put I click I don't know and then when I write a summary, I let her, I go, okay, 15 of the scenes in this book. I don't know the purpose. This is the scenes. We got to figure out why, like, what was the purpose here? What was your intent? And it makes the writer go, oh, if an editor reads your scene and says, I don't know why it's in the book, a writer then should really think hard about it and go, okay, why is it in the book? Oh, I can make it in the book. And so it's that spark again of creativity to go, well, what can I do with this scene to make it better? Speaking of fictionary features then, which one fictionary feature could you not live without? Oh, the story arc by far, because it's the most important. Without knowing what your story arc is, there isn't a story. Everything else is, is you can, you need to fill in around it. But without a big picture view of, of the story arc and, you know, and with that comes, 
is your protagonist in every key scene? Are they in the inciting incident plot point? And if they're not, that's a problem. Um, does it impact the protagonist in a positive or negative way? Do they have reaction time from it? So there's a bunch of things that fall out from it. But if the story arc is not set properly, nothing else works. So it doesn't matter. Like you can do whatever you want. You can have beautiful prose and you can have great entry hooks, but it still has to go by the form of a story arc. How has using Fictionary helped you as a writer then? I just find writing easier. I write in Fictionary now and use my elements as I'm going. I mean, I know them all because I created them all, but um, mostly for me, I use Story Coach for editing. I do one edit a month and I do that so that I am on top of what writers need and the latest trends and all of that. And I'm using my own software. So from an editor point of view, it means that because I can be fast enough, I can do it and run Fictionary at the same time, which is why I don't take on more than one because I just, then I'm just, I'm editing and I'm not running Fictionary. On the storyteller side, right now I'm playing with some nonfiction stuff to see, could I write creative nonfiction in there? Um, you know, it has to be creative nonfiction, not a mathematics textbook, say, for example, is perhaps not a good thing, but um, to see to see if I can stretch it out and, and help in that way. And so, I mean, I think for me as a writer, it just keeps me on track. So I just don't waste time going off somewhere and going, oh, why did I write? Oh, I'd spend all that time writing that. What for? I don't know. It was fun to write. Great, which is great. But if I'm actually trying to get a book done, maybe not. Do you plan our outline before you sit down to write in Fictionary? Lots of people do. I'm just not. I outline after. I do a post-draft outline because I love the experience of writing. At some point, you have to outline, I think. Like you, if you want to design your story, you got to outline it. And scene naming can do that. When you are, you've got your draft written, if you haven't outlined, like me, then when you name your scenes, there's your after draft outline and you can really think about does it make sense and does it work in the story context. So at some point, I think there must be an outline. That's really interesting because you're actually the first person I've interviewed that doesn't have an outline before they start writing. I find it really dull. Like if I have the outline, I know the story and I don't want to write it. Yeah, that that's why I bullet point it. I couldn't do a full on outline. I spoke to Elizabeth Van Craig and she writes 30 page outlines for every single yeah, book. Lots of people do, but everybody's different, right? You have to write how you enjoy it. You spend so much time doing it. It's really important to write how you write and not how anybody else writes. It's you as a person. It's your story, your life, your time. And so I got lots of advice. You must, must, must outline and think, I don't like it. So I'm not gonna <laughs> do that. I mean, as long as you've got the skills to understand the structure, right? That already puts you further ahead and makes it easier mm -hmm. for you to do it, whether you are outlining at the start or at the end to make sure everything kind of fits and serves its purpose. At some point, there must be an outline. You can, I don't think you can get away from it, but I like to do mine after. Then it's more interesting to me because then I'm figuring out how to make the story better versus figuring out what is the story. Yeah, I get that. So then this is one question that we ask every one of our guests. What's one book that changed your life? Oh, so that one's so easy for me. It's a, it's a mystery novel by Mary Higgins Clark called Moonlight Becomes You. And the reason it changed my life at the time I was working as an expat in Germany and I had a, a flight somewhere out of Zurich. So I had a car that was coming to pick me up at 4am to get me to this plane. And I think maybe I was going to London or something, but it doesn't matter somewhere. And the night before that, I'll just read a little bit before I go to bed. 
And I start reading and reading and reading. I couldn't put the book down. I'm like, oh, I have to know. Because she starts the scene out in the prologue as it's a woman in a coffin going, <laughs> trying to get out, right? You're like, okay. And then it jumps back in time and then goes forward. And I loved it. So I stayed up all night reading this book. And then you think, oh, God, the car's here. And I was so tired and I felt so bad. And you think, oh, what was I thinking? Why did I do this? And then I thought, oh, I want to write a book. I want to write a book that does that to people that they just so irresponsibly <laughs> read their book instead of doing what they should be doing, sleeping and getting ready for their next big day that, I don't know, I got really excited about writing. And before that point, and I was probably 35, it, I never had a wish to write a book at all. It had never occurred to me. So I got to say, that's the one book that then my, I just completely went off. Filter. That's amazing for a book to have that much of an impact on yeah. you and also make you sleep deprived but obviously yes. you've got up on that by now <laughs> yeah so that's mine the last time I stayed up really late to finish a book that I can significantly remember I lived at the old flat with my boyfriend and my friend was staying over and I was reading anybody out there by Marianne Keys and it was just how tangible the character's grief was I had to get out of that character's head as quickly as possible right? because it was just emotionally draining me to read it. Mm -hmm. I was as broken as she was and I ended up staying up until 4am and I had to get up at like 7 or 8 o'clock and I need about 9 hours of sleep and it was such a stupid thing to do. Yeah, But, but I felt like, relieved. <laughs> and don't you think the author's like, yes, right? Like it just is, I don't know, it's just a joy. And so, you know, if, if, we a fictionary can do anything to help people write more stories like that how good is that like what a great way to spend my time definitely definitely because you want to have that emotional effect on your reader whether it is inspiring them to write or making them stay up until the middle of the night or reducing them to tears or making Whatever. them laugh out loud or making them miss their train that's right that was a that was a common one for my readers pre-pandemic is they nearly missed their stop on the train <laughs> I know you just don't. <laughs> yeah. And then they're yeah. like, wait, wait, I'm next. Oh, yeah, that's right. Where can our listeners go to find out more about you and Fictionary then? Right. So our website is fictionary.co, not com, fictionary.co. We've got two two parts to it, one for a storyteller and one for a story coach. So right at the beginning, you could you can go either either route. We have a YouTube channel. If you just search YouTube for Fictionary. Um, and we've put up a lot of short videos that do the fictionary, the 38 fictionary story elements. And um, what that does is it gives a really quick view. If you want the shortest way to learn what the elements are and how to apply them, every video says what it is, why it's important, how you apply it to your story. So that's all up there for free. If you just want to have a look and learn, it's a great place to learn. Um, on our website, you can sign up for a mailing list. And then, of course, you get our ebook on story editing and and, um, and the story elements. And I'm at Christina uh, at fictionary.co. So if you want to reach out to me, please do so. I'm happy to talk to you. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Did you find this episode enlightening? Don't forget to hit that shiny, shiny subscribe button so that you never miss an episode. Or if you're watching on YouTube, give us a subscribe and hit the like button. It really helps other writers find our videos and lets us know what type of content you want more of. And don't forget, you can support the Writer's Mindset over on Patreon for less than your favourite coffee a month. Join our growing gang of writers to get early access to episodes, bonus content and monthly writing catch-up calls with us. If you want to find out more, visit patreon.com forward slash writer's mindset to join our gang. 
And come and find us in our free Facebook group, which is writerscookbook.com forward slash Facebook group. We're in there every day talking all things writing, mindset, reading, and occasionally pets. So it'd be great to see you there. See you next time. Keep writing.